affairs, music, comedy, and Spanish language programming. Created and produced right here at KPFT. Don't miss a second on HD2. Mouse on over to kpft.org or on TuneIn Radio. KPFT Houston. so much for tuning in to the first broadcast of our brand new radio show latino politics and news with your host me i'm tony diaz and you may wonder why in the world do we need another radio program another outlet because there's not enough actual authentic voices from our community about our community and we're being talked about all over the news and in every single platform, every single candidate brings us up some way, shape, or form. But our job will be to every week from 2 to 3 p.m. shatter myths and stereotypes about our community. One of those will be that we don't vote. And then we're going to examine profoundly every candidate's platform to see how they engage or don't with the Latino community. And perhaps most importantly, we want to put a face to our community. It's actually become a cliche to say things like Texas will turn purple, Texas will turn blue. It's not going to happen until you come into all of our neighborhoods, talk to our families, and find out what their needs are. To get to that, we're going to line up some brilliant guests, some thought makers, and folks from the community like today. The second half of the show will feature an interview we're going to call in to Domingo Garcia, who is the National LULAC president. We're going to get his take on the recent Democratic presidential debates. We're going to find out which candidates attended the National LULAC conference and who is or is not sufficiently engaging with the Latino community. We also want to find out how to take those national campaigns and make them local and our first guest in live in studio will be the only Latino city council representative in Houston, the fourth largest city in America. His name is Robert Cagos. He's sitting next to me. I don't want to pretend you're not here. <laughs> thank you for coming out, Councilman. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. I appreciate the invite. And you're no stranger to the media. Of course, you know, you're you've been our champion. Kinda it's kinda rough that you're the only the only candidate uh, who is Latino. So we're going to, there, there's, I'm sure there's some pressure to it, but there's some glory to it as well. So, yeah. and you carry it well. 
Yes, uh, I, I'm, I'm often asked, how does it feel to be the only Latino out of 16 council members in the city of Houston? Uh, and my, <clears throat> my response usually is that I'm proud, but then at the same time, I'm embarrassed uh, due to the fact that I'm the only Latino out of 16 council members in the city of Houston. Uh, but with that, I, I do my very best in regards to representing uh, not only my district, since I'm a district council member in District I, uh, but others have called me an, actually an at-large council member because we get calls from all over the city into my office. Uh, exactly. And I think that that kind of alludes to some of the issues at stake. And what I want folks to realize is this is an introduction to the show, but this is a conversation that's been ignored for decades. So we, we, it, we're tempting to cram everything in one segment or the whole show. We can't. We have to unpack it week by week. And we're going to start touching on like we said, some of the pressure involved, but also what are some of the barriers that keep our community from being committed? And again, I want to stress, we take responsibility. Yes, it's up to us to vote, to educate our friends and neighbors. At the same time, I want people to think about this. I tell professors this. So sometimes I'm sitting with English professors and they're like, how come these students aren't learning grammar? I can't believe they don't love where the comma goes. And I have to pause and say, you know, I myself, I didn't really appreciate grammar until I wrote something I loved and understood. And I think it's kind of the same thing with voting. Until our community is engaged that way, then will the electoral power overflow. So we're going to get to that. Additionally, we're going to have a new segment. We're going to kick it off with a call into Carla Aguilar about a special issue that has to do with the Alamo. So there's a court battle going on for the Alamo, San Antonio, just a little bit down I-10. And the other thing I want to stress, too, is that, yes, some of these issues are local. We've had national figures on. We're going to have statewide figures on. We're going to have candidates on who may or may not be Latino. But let's get something clear. Every candidate, every party must engage our community. We also want to come up with some of the formulas, the calculus, to take national campaigns and other campaigns deep into the community. We're going to touch on some of those values. Most importantly, we're going to humanize them. The other thing that's going to be special about this show is we're putting you to work already. So, yes, there's a lot of theory. I'm proud that we're going to have the intelligentsia on here. We're going to have professors. We're going to have folks that are from the School of Hard Knocks. Uh, we're going to introduce our great team right now for the radio show in a little bit. But I want to put you to work, dear listeners, right now. Because bad news, the last mayoral election did not result in a Latino mayor, okay? It never has. So unlike San Antonio that's had a Latino mayor, I, I think Austin has as well. Um, Dallas has not. Houston has not. And, of course, we are the largest of the Texas cities, fourth largest city in America. I personally believe that the 44% population indicated by the last census was an undercount. I think it'll be over 50%. It should be. Now, we haven't even factored in coronavirus scare to the 2020 census and typical undercounts. So all that's part of the mix. However, we want to accelerate the conversation because in three years and seven months, we'll have another Houston mayoral election. That'll be in a November date. Now, if you're a serious candidate, you'll need about a year to run. So we need two years and seven months for the Latino candidate of the people to step up. And kind of like you alluded to, Councilman, it's got to be someone that people understand will represent everybody. Mm -hmm. 
but profoundly understand some of the issues and concerns that, that we bring up because they've lived them. Now, we want you to help out by telling us who will be Houston's first Latino mayor. I'm going to give you one promise. We're going to interview Houston's first Latino mayor on this radio show, even though she may not even realize she's the people's choice right now. Now, what I'm saying is that we're going to find that person. Who that is, I don't know yet. It could be someone that's established. could be someone that's running. could be someone in the cabina. <laughs> could be someone that steps up out of the blue, so to speak. But unless we start thinking about it and changing the way we approach our community, that will never happen. So, dear listeners, who do you think will be Houston's first Latino mayor? Who are some candidates, some figures who are serious candidates, wishful candidates? And we'd like you to send us the name of that person. And you can do it several ways. You can go to our Facebook page, Latino Politics and News. You can tweet it to us at Politics Latino, or you can email it to us at info at latinopoliticsandnews.com. We're also opening the phone line. So if you want to call in, you can call us at 713-526-5738. Give us your name and email and your suggestion, and we'll share the response on the air. And then we'll keep going back to that because we've got our own list. We've got a list of about a dozen figures that we think would be legitimate candidates right now that the people might embrace, but maybe we're overlooking somebody. By the same token, we also, in all fairness, want to meet with these folks, talk to them. Maybe they don't want to be thrown into the into the pool yet. Maybe they are planning and they say, hey, my strategist wants us to wait and plan. And other folks may not even realize that the community wants them to run. We want to take all those factors into consideration but here's the point. As we go on throughout the year, we'll go back to these suggestions, we'll go back to these figures, and we're going to be going out to your communities as well, not just the traditional communities where you expect us to be, but also pockets of Houston where you may not even realize that there's a big Latino population. I'm going to give you one insight into that. It's City Council A, which is part of Spring Branch. That is about 40% Latino. Uh, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that district, but of course they just selected Amy Peck. She is a, a, a woman, Anglo woman. She's Republican. And she is the protege of Brenda Stardick, who just stepped down from that position because of term limits. However, I live out there, and there's a whole lot of community members that are Latino, but there's not any organic centers of that they can go to. What are your thoughts on City Council A? Yeah, in, in regards to City Council A, yeah, definitely. Uh, it, like you stated, there was about 40% or so uh, Latino in, in District A. Uh, and not only that, I mean, there's other districts as well. There's uh, 11 council districts in the city of Houston. Uh, and, of course, the re district that I represent, District I, is uh, 70, about 78% Latino. Uh, then District H is also a, a Latino district. Uh, and District A, like they stated in the past, that, that that has a good percentage of Latinos there now. Uh, but the uh, demographics throughout the whole city is changing. Uh, so to basically just say now it's just District I or District H, in, in my opinion, that's not the case. Uh, it's just that we need to encourage people uh, to basically register to vote and go out and vote. And, and they are doing it. It's, it's increasing. Uh, but I try to do that every ch opportunity I get. Uh, to let people know the importance of, of actually going out and voting 
because uh, that's where they're going to get improvements in their neighborhoods and in, in, in their districts. Uh, so that's why it's very important. That's fantastic. And, of course, this is a sneak preview into the full-on <laughs> interview with Councilman Gallegos. This is not even the actual interview yet. This is all bonus intellectual information. Right now, I do want to cut to our news portion. And, of course, with the coronavirus virus situation going on, that's taking up a lot of news, closing down a lot of federal and uh, governmental institutions. We're going to talk to Carla Aguilar, who is involved with this new court battle that is engaging the Alamo and her and some of the activists from the indigenous community have been monitoring the situation. I think she's on the air with us. Carla, are you there? Good afternoon, Tony. Hey, Carla, thank you so much for calling in. We really appreciate it. I welcome the opportunity to be able to share this information with your audience. So thank you for having me. Now, we were going to interview you live and do an extended interview because you and your uh, organization were scheduled to convene with the Texas Historical Commission. But again, like, like we stated, because of the governmental institutions closing down, that's been postponed. Tell folks a little bit why you were going there. Well, the Texas Historical Commission is uh, meets quarterly and is a determining factor on a lot of different uh, archaeological digs, renovations, and sometimes it's real humdrum sort of scenarios where they're going to rebuild a house and is it the right kind of historical window. In this instance, the Texas Historical Commission was going to have to make a decision on three different applications for historical cemetery designation at the Alamo and in the plaza, which prior to the Battle of 1836 was a full um, Spanish mission where um, people like you or I or any of the other Mission Indian families that are descended from there, uh, where they got married, where they were baptized, where... They fell in love where the kids, skin, you know, skin their knees running across the plaza. It's, it's the, the, the heart and soul and origin of San Antonio or what became San Antonio because it was, it was these little pueblos that formed across the missions going south along the San Antonio River that were engulfed, you know, uh, ultimately by the city of San Antonio. But for those of us that were raised here in Texas, we never hear that story. All we hear is the Battle of 1836. And so with the half-a-billion-dollar renovation project that is currently um, unfolding at the Alamo, uh, that's really focusing in, again, exclusively on, on that myopic component of history of the Battle of 1836, which, of course, you know, all of the other mythology that comes along from it of, of, of liberty, and there's so many aspects of, of nuance and complexity that led up to the battle of, uh, of, of independence that, again, is, is left out. And so it's happening, uh, that, that uh, practice of omission is happening again with the cemetery situation because the Alamo Trust is saying that there's only people buried under the church and in the walls of the church, and so their permit only talks about that, whereas uh, our tribal community, the Tapilam Kwawitakin Nation, which are direct lineal descendants of the Mission Indian families that built that community, San Antonio de Valero, before it was called the Alamo, uh, their families are buried there. We know that we have burial records that demonstrate over a thousand people buried there on site. There's another uh, descendants organization, the Alamo Defenders, which also has another application. So it's a, um, a um, uh, a, a battle, if you will, among a much bigger 
a complex uh, situation that's happening around the Alamo that deals with erasure of indigenous history, that is Tejano history, that is a history of mo a lot of Mexican-Americans from South Texas. And, and we, as, as like the, the bigger picture, we, we want people to re be reminded that we're not strangers on our own homeland, that we, we were here before the Anglos arrived and should be acknowledged in history, and, and we're demanding it uh, through the Texas Historical Commission's acknowledgement of the cemeteries, plural, at the Alamo, and furthermore, through the state and federal court cases, which we're also involved in wow. uh, by asserting our rights, to say that uh, Fuerza, the Alamo Trust, the General Land Office, Texas Historical Commission, and the city of San Antonio have to include on-site acknowledgement of the indigenous families that made San Antonio wow. possible. And wow. that we should be a part of the Archaeology Advisory Committee. And they found four bodies, four articulated bodies, and uh, um, over 100 other human remains but they're not wanting to call it a cemetery because then that kicks in all of these other laws. So there's a lot of information that folks can uh, begin to interpret and saturate themselves with by going to the website of our tribal community, uh, the Tapilam Kowiltekin Nation, and uh, that's uh, T-A-P-P-I-L-A-M.org, Tapilam.org. And that, that means people of the earth, people from here, and that's in the Pahalape language. So T-A-P-P-I-L-A-M.org. And then folks can begin to see, to start poking at it, because there's a lot of information behind it. We've been in this battle to protect the cemeteries uh, in, in, at the Alamo for since the 80s, you know. Right. Um, and even before then, when um, the Daughters of the Republic of Texas, uh, I want to say in, in 1986, that uh, they were doing a project, and uh, and and like a, a cranium fell out of the wall, and so they called our tribal community, called our elders to help them take care of it and put it back and, and do it in a good way, right? Because they knew that there were Mission Indians and mestizos and other folks there, and so our elders came and 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 they they, they put that cranium back and you know um, asked for forgiveness that the ancestors would be um, disturbed that way. And uh, up until uh, a few years ago when the new leadership came into the Alamo Trust, uh, Mr. Uh, Douglas McDonald, who's the CEO of the Alamo Trust, completely cut out our tribal community from being involved um, in the determination of what happened to the ancestors there at the Alamo, um, stating that you know, we're not federally recognized and that we don't have authority in that place. And that, that was in... Uh, 2018, you said? Uh, that, yes. That... 2017, 2018 is when that curtain hmm. came down. When uh, prior to that, you know, we, our tribal community had been solicited not only by the Daughters of the Republic of Texas, but uh, George P. Bush and others uh, in, in the initial leadership that wanted to do things in a good way. Right. But had our elders come out and, and pray over the project. And so, so let me ask you this then. So it, it sounds like you've got to really stay vigilant. And, of course, we're looking forward to having you back. But let, let me close with these three aspects. And, and one, the last question will be how people can stay engaged. But for folks that might be asking how this is political, we've done a lot with Nuestra Palabra about pushing for Mexican studies. And part of it always comes down to the political action of lawsuits and commissions etc so that's why you're on the, that lane that's why we're going to follow it on this show 
Secondly, the the law and also the commissions dictate exactly how that area is treated for tourism, historical reasons, etc. So that is vital. How can besides following along when you meet with the commission will the public be allowed inside next time uh, yes uh they, we don't know where the next meeting is going to be gotcha. because they're still trying to address that um, but the public is always welcome to participate there's uh, committee reports and people can do a citizens to be heard public hearing um sign up where they have a few minutes to be able to address the commission and can you tell us next next when you find out can you please let us know when that next date is Absolutely, and I, and I really want to underscore how important these decisions are because they set a precedent for any other historical cemeteries or sacred sites across the state of Texas, and it's really, really important uh, that we you know, push, push hard on this one because I don't think I'll ever see another renovation of the Alamo happen in my lifetime, um, and I want to make sure that they do it right and they represent the people correctly. Love it. Well, thank you so much for all that you would. Thank you for calling in, and thank you for kicking off Latino Politics and News News section. Gracias. Muchísimo éxito. Adelante. Unidos. And you're listening to Latino Politics and News. This is Tony Diaz. Actually, I want to introduce our crew members. Nabu is running the board for us. We also have Al Castillo, president of Lulac Council 60. Lori Flores, who is a brand new volunteer. She represents City Council I for us. Our community. I'm sorry, H. City Council H. And then, uh, hey, Jesse Aranda Comer from Rice University. He's learning how to run the board. And then Rodrigo Bravo, who is, you're, you're talking to him on social media right now. So I hope that you are engaging with him and sending us notes and questions about who you think could or should be Houston's first Latino mayor. And in studio with us is City Councilman Robert Garcia, who is uh, the City Councilman for City Council I. I I'm getting them confused. <laughs> I apologize for that. Thank you for clarifying that. But this is a big deal because, congratulations, you were the incumbent. You won by a landslide. You mm -hmm. did have an opponent. And there were actually several candidates. There were, I, I think, uh, over a dozen among the hundred and something <laughs> city council representatives that were running at large. And you ran the most competitive race and the, the race that won. No one else won. Now, um, what are some of the factors you think behind that? We touched a little bit on, uh, on basically how... Uh, Dissolved and dissolute mm -hmm. the the Latino electorate is because we're everywhere, not mm -hmm. just in these electoral uh, spots anymore. What are some other factors do you think that have led to this situation? Uh, in, in in my personal opinion, and you mentioned it right now when you were talking to Carla uh, in regards to Mexican American studies. I know that uh, me personally, I, I enjoy history. Uh, growing up and going you know going to high school and what have you and. Uh, uh, I always was frustrated that I would never learn the history of the Mexican-Americans or the Tejanos here in Texas. Uh, it was very frustrating when you would get your history book, uh, basically, and they just maybe three, four pages of before 1836, and then the rest <laughs> of it was after 1836. Uh, so that was very frustrating. Uh, but now that, uh, that uh, you know, thank you to your efforts, uh, the state did approved in regards to uh, providing Mexican-American studies in our schools. I'm hoping that uh, the uh, future uh, leaders will have that pride and that history uh, so that way they can start uh, hopefully running for office and what have you, knowing that, uh, you know, we just didn't appear one day. We, we were here. Uh, we have a history of being in the, in, in the state in this part of the nation. Uh, we helped build it. Uh, so now we have a sense of pride. 
uh, and therefore we can now be proud in regards to running for office and doing other big things, big and better things uh, in in our futures. That's wonderful you brought that up because I think, again, this is not conspiracy theory where we say people try to eliminate that because Arizona banned Mexican-American studies. Mm -hmm. We're pointing to a historical fact. Additionally, we've had the fight for it here in the state, like you mentioned. If you watch any national broadcast, they always talk about suburban, college-educated voters, right? They need to start talking about our community in those Mm -hmm. terms, but we also need the school system to respond. Just to allude to some of those struggles, we're actually going to have on April, um, it's going to be April 7th, on Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their show, which still airs, 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. will be on tonight again, but that's more on the arts side and the education side specifically. But we're going to have Michelle Palmer. She is a one of the um, Democratic uh, candidates who's running in a primary for Texas State Board of Education seat six, formerly held by Republican Donna Bohorich. She's stepping mm-hmm. down, and we want to interview all of them to see what, what they say about this because kind of you alluded to Obviously, when folks are educated, they become more engaged. So that's just one. That's just the tip of the pyramid. But I'm glad you brought that up. The other thing I'd like to add, too, because we've gone to you a lot. You've helped us so much in our struggles to get funding for Latino arts, culture. Uh, You helped us also when the mayor wrote a letter against that terrible... Uh, racist textbook that was proposed. You helped them. Uh, you helped us bring that attention to the mayor for that. You actually pushed for that a lot. You you you've done so much for ethnic studies. But I want to point something out too, and I'll put you on the spot a little bit. You're one of those politicians and um, representatives who acts. We we go to you and you mm-hmm. champion causes. I'm not going to name names right now, but there are other Latino elected officials who do not. Mm-hmm. And I think that what happens then is our community sees an elected Latino official at every level. And I don't mean, I don't just mean one level of government. I mean from school board up to governor, et cetera. If they see a Latino elected official who does not stand up for community issues and champion community issues, they would say, why, why get involved? Do you get a lot of calls mm-hmm. from folks, not just from your district, to support different issues? Yes, yes, I do. I mean, I, I know that uh, before, I've only been in office now going on my seventh year. Uh, prior to that, I was a community leader in the East End, uh, and that, that was something that I, I would deal with myself, is that when we, there was issues that we wanted to tackle or try to address, uh, you know, we would go, and, and unfortunately, sometimes our, our, our leaders at that time did, 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 didn't take the ball and run with it, basically, uh, which was frustrating. Uh, so uh, that was one reason running for office is that, you know, I mean, you don't step up and you need to be quiet and you know so therefore uh that was frustrating for me so when the opportunity came i ran for office uh and i do my best in regards to when there are issues or concerns i do speak up uh and that's the only way to do it because uh without speaking up like you stated people in the background are just saying well if you're not speaking up why should i even bother and you kind of mentioned you're almost like an at-large city councilman right. because all the Latinos have one place to go. Right. I, I think I'd like to complicate that a little further, too, by encouraging our community to engage all at-large candidates. They should all be well-versed in our community and our needs. I think the other thing I'd like to add, we, we've mentioned several times, our community knows that it should vote. Uh, we know that we need to do different campaigns to get people registered to vote. But I also want to point out, that there's something structurally going on. And I think we, before in the past we could blame one party or the other. Harris County is now blue. 
there's a lack of Latino representation at Houston City Council levels, in judgeships for Harris County, and it made national news, but it's gone off the radar in surrounding areas like Pearland and Pasadena that have a huge Latino population, but not the same sort of representation, and and on and on and on. So at a certain point, it comes to mind to say, well, there are structural issues. I, w- I want to add one other thing, too. I don't want to get too obscure, but this whole issue of engagement, the sociologist Pierre Bourdieu says that those who feel disenfranchised or left out, they're their own political party. And I think we touched on it. If Latinos see that Latino elected officials don't step up and help, or... Again, we can name different communities that politicians don't go to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, in my neighborhood, I did not get knocks on the door, so I got to go knock on their door, right? And I speak English pretty good, you know. Um, so, what's going on with, with that community? I think those are a lot of different factors. And any other factors that we're missing? Do you think that structurally might add to a lack of representation? Well, again, basically, in, in, in regards to what we can accomplish, hopefully in the near future, uh, nearly half of the population under 18 in the state of Texas is Latino. Uh, and there is a state law, basically, to register those in high school that are seniors. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, that's not really being done or really being pushed by, our, by th- those in Austin. Uh, and the reason why is because it wouldn't benefit them. <laughs> it, that's it, a great it, point. It, if the majority of those that are under 18 and, and senior, uh, seniors in high school register to vote, they could lose their positions in Austin. Uh, but I think that's something that we need to start pushing is to make sure that uh, we are going, and they are doing. I mean, mi familia vota, I've, I've spoken with them. They go into high schools. Uh, uh, Jolt, I understand, is looking at, or is doing the same in regards to going into high schools. Uh, but I think we can all work together with LULAC and everyone else uh, to go into these high schools and register those that are going to become 18 uh, so they can register to vote. Because that, that way, there'll be change, in, in hopefully in the near future. Because, again, if you have nearly half the population is under 18 or it's Latino, I mean, that, that, that you're talking about some big changes. And, and I, I think especially right now, you've got tonight some of the primary elections were canceled. There's talk mm-hmm. of voting just by ballot. I know people go crazy when we talk about voting by email. But for the young people, there should be a way to make it easier for them to vote. Um, if I understand correctly, some of the legislatures, some of the powers that be, took away the mobile voting uh, booths because they could be at every college, at every high school. They probably should be at every high school. Additionally, I know no one wants to vote on email because it's not it's not secure. Never mind that I renewed my license by online. Never mind <laughs> that I pay my credit card or mortgage mm-hmm. online. That's still science fiction for some folks. But let, let me add one more thing, and then we're going to make it a little more granular. I think the other issue that happens, too, is that it seems like a joke, some of these campaign races. When we go to interview folks, it's hard to find their websites. It's hard to find their platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some folks that don't have any of that, and especially at the school board level. So why would the young people get engaged if the actual adults aren't engaged? Let's get really specific and granular. Joining us is one of our new crew members, Al Castillo, president of LULAC Council 60. Hey, thank you for getting involved. Thank you, Tony, and greetings, uh, Tony, and greetings, Councilmember Gallegos. How are you, sir? Doing great. Thank you. Also, we should give a shout-out to the podcast. we got the LULAC Council 60 podcast that's been uh, you know, launched, and it's really fantastic. So thank you for being multimedia. But I think you also wanted to bring some of the issues down to earth. We were talking about the 
commissions and the laws around the Alamo. Well, let's talk about the Lulac House. Speaking of uh, talking about land. Yeah, the Lulac, uh, the clubhouse, uh, in parentheses or in uh, quotations, is, is a, uh, it's a iconic and it's a venerable uh, dwelling in the, here in Midtown. And it is where the Hispanic uh, community as a political arm was born. Which so and we it is it is seen it's 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 good times and it's fallen on hard times, and it is disre- in disrepair, and we are efforting as a council, uh, sixty, to uh, not only reconstruct but uh, bring it back to its, its original, uh, its original, uh, motive a motif so uh, we can we can all enjoy it in the future. That's awesome, and, and councilman, do you think mm-hmm. there's any strategies that? We haven't been approaching to either get more support for the Lulac House. What's the address? It's right here. It's literally about three blocks away from the KPFT studios. Yeah, Tony. It's 3004 Bagby Street. I could literally jog over there. <laughs> um, are there any tactics, do you think, that we haven't been employing to bring more recognition to it, uh, either citywide, statewide, or nationwide? Well, I mean, as, you know, <clears throat> as, as it was stated, I mean, there's a lot of history there in that building. Uh, and a lot of uh, history due to the fact of uh, Lulac Council 60 and what they've accomplished in the past. Uh, but uh, I, I am working with the administration uh, to see if uh, there's an opportunity uh, to bring the uh, Lulac uh, clubhouse into a TERS. Uh, and unfortunately, it sits between two TERS. Uh, so I'm hoping that we can bring it. Uh, into can you give people the acronym for TERS? Well, well the, the tax inc- increment re- re- revitalization zone. Uh, so businesses put uh, uh, put in increments of, from their taxes. When the, the valuation of their property when it goes up, it goes into this TERS, and the TERS uses those those monies to do infrastructure improvements within that boundary of a TERS. Uh, so. Uh, the uh, if I remember correctly, the uh, clubhouse sits outside the Montrose Tours and the Midtown Tours. <laughs> They're always messing with borders with us, man. It's right. always the borders. <laughs> so, so it's, 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 it doesn't have a Tours, but there's two Tours right nearby. Right. <clears throat> so I'm working with the administration to see if that's, that's a possibility to bring uh, to expand one of the Tours boundaries and include the clubhouse. So that way, in the future. Uh, hopefully there are some revenues there from the tours that can help to do renovations at, at the clubhouse. So that's something I'm working with the administration to see if that's possible. And that is huge. I think it does tie into what Carla was saying about the Alamo, too, mm-hmm. in that if we go to sleep or don't watch or not experts in these areas, there's all these rules, commissions, political entities that play a role in organizing buildings and blocks. And if we're not involved, they're doing it in a way that doesn't serve our community. So really appreciate you Mm -hmm. getting involved with that. I do want to add, too, this is a national issue in that, in that throughout Texas and I'm sure other states, our community is thriving and existing in areas where they're not the focal point. I want to say one thing, and then we're going to bring our guest in, uh, our national guest in. Um, We're talking about Midtown and Montrose, where the Lulek House is. You just said that the origin of that powerhouse in Houston is in this area, which is not seen as a Latino area. Additionally, Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, which turns 22 this April. It first event was at Chapultepec restaurant right here too in Montrose. You know, imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, when I came from Chicago in graduate school, everyone kept saying these other barrios were the ones you have to go to. I'm like, you know, there's a lot of Latinos 
here. And I think that's how we have to mm-hmm. recalibrate. Um, now, joining us on the air, calling in, is National LULAC President Domingo Garcia. Domingo, ¿cómo estás? Muy bien. Uh, you know, the corona has not got to uh, to me yet or anybody else. I hope it stays that way. And we're trying to get the word out to the community about what to do and not to. Que bueno. Well, of course, we're doing it by phone, so we're keeping socially distant. So, <laughs> estamos cumpliendo. We're, we're complying in that way. And I want to let you know that you are also joined. We've got uh, El Castillo. He is president of Lulac Council 60s. Hey, say hi, El. How are you, Domingo? Nice to hear from you. Yeah, good to see you and hear from you. And I was listening to the conversation. Hope you get that uh, historic Lulac House, uh, you know, rehabilitated and back in its former glory. Well, thanks for that. We are we are doing our best. We are efforting every possibility and every option. And we have a good team on the ground. And we have a good strategy. So thanks for your encouragement. And also, we're joined by City Councilman Robert Gallegos, who is the only sitting Latino councilman out of 16 council members in Houston, the fourth largest city in America. Saluda. Hey, good good afternoon, Domingo. Good talking to you. Yeah, and we need to we need to change that. Dallas has five council Latino council members out of 15, so there's something in there in the, in Houston that we got to change up, uh, especially during redistricting, to make sure that we focus great real Latino seats that we can win as well as I still don't understand why you have that large seats. I just think that disenfranchises uh, large Latino populations, even though we've had a couple be elected uh, citywide. Right. Appreciate you bringing that up because even before we talk about some of the platforms from the uh, presidential candidates, you've touched on two major issues. You've got the redistricting, the gerrymandering, and then also the at-large seats, which uh, and you pointed out a great example. Here you have Dallas where they've got five seats, and and I think shows down the line, we we should talk about at some point. At one point, we did have five city council members during the Ben Reyes era, and we need to talk about what happened there. But uh, you mentioned uh, redistricting. That's a really big issue that leads to this, Domingo, don't you think? It, it's going to be crucial. I mean, the, that's why the census numbers uh, and getting those accurate counts are important, even with this uh, coronavirus but making sure that every latino and latinas counted whether uh, no part of no part of what part of houston or harris county they're in and also that that when we we're at the table uh and we're not ignored because i bet you latinos and latinas are going to be the majority mm-hmm. of houston in terms of just voting age population forget about total population voting age population and uh you know you still have an elected or latino or latina as mayor of houston mm-hmm. uh, we've had multiple african-americans uh, like Sylvester Turner, he's a friend, but Latinos are a majority, but we are not acting like a majority. And that's something that we want to work with. LULAC wants to work with local leadership to change that. Love it. And just to remind our listeners, right now we are taking calls as well as emails. We want people to start nominating who they think some figures are, who would be a great Latino mayor or, or a viable candidate, because we only have three years and seven months to the next mayoral election, and really about two years and seven months for a viable campaign. So we appreciate you Bringing that up, I want people to call in. But let, let's get it to the um, to the presidential election now. You know, you've you've done a lot of work to make sure Latinos are kept in the national eye. Give us a report card on who showed up to the national LULAC convention from the presidential candidates and what you thought of them. Well, you know, we've had uh, our first one was a Milwaukee International Convention, July of 2019, and all the candidates at that time, the major candidates, Beto, Julian, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, uh, almost all of them showed up, uh, and we were uh, honored to have all of them there. The only one that did not show up was Joe Biden, but he sent his wife, Jill, 
who spoke at one of our lunches. And as we did, we did another one in Iowa. A lot of people don't know there's Latinos in Iowa. It's not just uh, <laughs> even though it looks like it's a lily white state, but there's about eight uh, percent Latinos. And in a caucus state, uh, we had a record turnout of Latinos. Bernie Sanders did a very good job of having uh, Loterias with Theo Bernie and uh, you know Carne Asada with Theo Bernie and stuff like that, and it worked. Uh, he got a majority Latino vote, and that was enough to uh, uh, get him into a tie for first place with uh, Pete Buttigieg. And then we had another one in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, before the Nevada caucuses. And again, we had uh, Amy Kobachar, uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Uh, we had Bernie Sanders. And uh, I think we had uh, Tom Steyer at that time. Uh, and um, But again, Biden didn't show up. And I'm kind of concerned Biden's not showing up. Uh, and I'm concerned that uh, his campaign is not as inclusive of Latinos. It's heavy on African-Americans. But again, Latinos are kind of at the little kids' table in his campaign from what I'm seeing. And that concerns me as we go forward. Um, that's kind of my brief analysis of what we've seen so far on national level. No, 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 but, but that's very potent and on point because I do want to bring up the uh, the eve of Super Tuesday. And I think a lot of it is if, if Biden wants to do a, a top-notch campaign, he's going to need a coalition. And I agree with you. I kind of feel Latinos have been admitted omitted um tuesday night before super tuesday the night klobuchar suspended her campaign endorsed him uh but was on stage as well they did have two they have uh rafael from texas and then uh naivis tambien naivis gave the best speech of the evening in my opinion but that wasn't the speech that was on national news so on national news people saw amy klobuchar they saw uh, joe biden and then they heard beto and the only direct appeal that i saw on, on Joe Biden's evening before he actually started uh, catapulting in the in the delegates, probably one of his best speech up to that night. All they saw for Latinos was Beto sprinkling some Spanish. And when Beto talked about electoral achievements, I was blown away that he did not mention two Tejanas going to Congress, including the fact that one of them, Veronica Escobar, now occupies the seat he abandoned to run for Senate. Now, uh, you know, again, like you say, uh, if Biden sends someone, that's one thing. Uh, what, what are some things he can do, do you think, to, to more directly engage the Latino community? Well, first of all, I think he needs to have uh, a, a Latino peer, uh, for lack of a better understanding, but I'm just going to be you know, politically blunt. Uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, if you have a candidate that has Latino peers, which they see and they can get advice from, they're going to make sure that their top staff is Latino and Latina, that their outreach uh, has finances, money, that they can use to do outreach in the Latino community and go to uh, uh, people's homes, go to events, and get the word out in the Latino community about what they're going to do. And if they don't, and I, again, I'm, I'm really going to uh, you know, give some uh, punches. Go there. Go there. <laughs> they're not doing it. And uh, he's winning. Uh, he said he's gonna. He promised that he was gonna make uh, a woman his VP candidate. How much? I bet you uh, a bottle of uh, 1942 tequila <laughs> that it's gonna be an African American female, probably. Okay. And again, even though there's many Latinas also out there, uh, the Nevada uh, U.S. Senator for Nevada, uh, Catherine uh, Cortez Mastro, I think would be a great candidate. Nevada is a swing state. I think you have people like the, the governor of New Mexico. Uh, Michelle Griffin Lujan, who could be there. 
but uh, I don't know that he's going to get there. I'd like to add as well, uh, of course, and you're just repeating what's out there. Uh, so, one, Bernie Sanders needed to work on reaching out more profoundly to the African-American community. So his that's his task. Uh, Biden needed to reach out to the Latino community. At the last debate, uh, Biden was directly asked why he feels he's not hitting home or touching the hearts of Latinos. And he dodged that question. But let me add something to what you're saying. The people around him, his he hired someone from El Paso, Cristobal Alex. I'm looking at his Twitter feed during the debate. And instead of answering the question, Cristobal Alex, again, we're just being frank and direct because this is what we need to be. He simply said that, well, he won this state, that state. He won older voters in Texas. He did not actually go into a profound analysis of how he's going to reach out to Latinos or engage them. And here's my concern, like you said, peer-to-peer. I'm worried then that either, like you say, the people counseling him don't know how to reach us or worse, are scared to to argue with him. Well, look, every candidate, even like Hillary Clinton, didn't have a Latina or Latino on her major campaign staff. She looked at Latinos and Latinos that work for her as the hired help. And that's sort of a dynamic that doesn't lend themselves uh, to getting out of their bubble and say, hey, why don't we have a Latino or Latino surrogate talking for us on CNN or on MSNBC? And you rarely see any Latino or Latino surrogate speaking for Biden on, uh, on, on there. Uh, in fact, the only candidate that did have a, a, a Latino or Latino surrogate was uh, Bernie Sanders, who had Chuck Rocha, who's from East Texas. Uh, talking on on most of the uh, cable news networks, but none of the other candidates did. All of them, none of them had a Latino or Latina as a major talking surrogate, and that's a big issue. And then, if we don't have that, we're not at the table. And if you're not on the table, you're on the menu. And if you're not on the menu, you're at the little kids' table. Either <laughs> one is bad. <laughs> Domingo, if I may, Sal Castillo, uh, wouldn't it be a natural for the Democratic nominee to attend our national convention in D.C.? in uh, July? Uh, yes, we would. Hopefully we will we'll continue. We're, we're trying to make a decision where we're going to have a national convention in Washington, which is scheduled for July. Right. Uh, the whole uh, what's going on, we may have to postpone that till September, yeah. but we would invite uh, whoever the Democratic nominee is, probably is going to be Vice President Biden. Uh, he did speak to our national July convention two years ago in Phoenix, Arizona. Right. When he that was his first major speech before he announced he was running for president of the United States. So, our plan is to meet with him. We are getting together uh, a group of Latino leaders uh, to meet with him uh, for the Democratic National Convention and address our concerns. And but the more people that call and the people that are listening to the radio show and let the Biden team know, hey, you need to include Latinos at all levels. Uh, how many Latinos are you going to have on your cabinet? Uh, are you going to have a Latino or a Latina as your vice presidential candidate? Uh, those are things that a lot of our people still don't know. They're not growing up politically matured, and they give their their endorsements and get zero in return. Nada. Okay? And that's part the African-American community doesn't do that. They, You know, Congressman uh, Claiborne in South Carolina endorses Biden, and Biden wins South Carolina. I guarantee you they got their pound of uh, political uh, promises uh, if he's a sex- successful. We just don't play that right. And, and you raise a great point, too, because I've actually heard community members say things like, 
well, he's only saying that because he wants our vote. And what I tell them is that's how this works. I mean, so you need to ask them, say, here's what we want to get your vote. But I think like you pointed out, our community doesn't do that actively or knows to do that. So we need to start doing that. And that's one thing we want to do with the radio show, exactly like you said. So one thing you recommended is that people can look into the campaigns. People can ask, uh, you know, who is going to be on the cabinet, who is the vice president going to be, and perhaps expand on the issue. A couple of things I did like about the um, uh, Bernie Sanders did this twice. I remember in the 2016 Democratic debate, uh, that debate pushed Hillary Clinton to amplify her her stance on immigration. I think I saw the same thing happening with this with this uh, recent uh, debate, but I'm also disappointed that it seems that immigration is the only issue that Latinos are considered in. Would you say that's the case? What other issues should Latinos be engaged in? Well, right now with this coronavirus flu, Latinos are the largest uninsured group in Texas and in the United States. We have more Latinos that don't have health insurance than any other ethnic group. That means they have to make some really tough choices. When Jose and Maria are there at the kitchen table uh, trying to decide, are we going to buy the insulin for our daughter mm. to make sure that she's healthy, or are we going to pay the rent? And are we going to take them to the hospital or not? Because if we go to the hospital and we get that two or $3,000 emergency room bill, what's that going to do to our house ability to pay our house or car payments? Those are crucial uh, and important issues. Uh, we need to make sure that we have health care for everybody uh, that's a U.S. citizen and a U.S. resident, and we need to figure a way to have a safety net for those immigrants that are not. And that needs to be a major issue, education. And the fact of the matter is, I know I took a student loan out when I went to Texas Southern University Law School. Uh, because, you know, I was the first one in my family to graduate from high school or go to college. And my family couldn't help me. I didn't have a wealthy parents that could pay for my college. And I had to work there at uh, NIMPAS on navigation Dang, as a waiter. De verdad. Wow. <laughs> de verdad. Uh, to, uh, to pay my way through school. And a lot of families, a lot of Latinos and Latinas who could become great astronauts there at NASA, who could become the, you know, the discoverers of a cure for cancer at, there at uh, MD Anderson, they're not getting that opportunity because they're having to decide uh, to go to community college or, or trade school or go work construction with their dad because they don't have that economic uh, opportunity to go to college. Powerful. I'm going to let Councilman Gallegos get the last question, but I do want to say this. Because I want to make it clear that you are a walking example of the American dream. Because you just mentioned your humble beginnings. But I also remember going to Texas Southern University uh, and uh, going to an event at their law school, which is about 50% raza. Like 50% Chicanos, Latinos go to Texas Southern University Law School. And I remember I went and you gave them a big fat check in six figures, giving them back because you give back to the community. When was that? Do you remember when that was? That was about three years ago. I put make, create the first uh, endowment uh, for minority students there at Texas Southern uh, uh, Law School because you know they gave me the opportunity when uh, when uh, back when UT Law School, for example, uh, you know basically uh, uh, blackballed me because I was the president of Mecha Movement uh, to Chicano de Flan and was kind of a rabble rouser back in my college days. <laughs> you think? So even though Harvard, even though Harvard accepted me, uh, I couldn't afford Harvard back then, uh, but Texas Southern did, and they gave me that opportunity, and it still paid off, so I gave back. 
powerful. Uh, Councilman Gigas, you want to close this out with yeah. a question? And, uh, Domingo, I, I don't know if you heard uh, or if you were on hold when, when I mentioned this in regards to the uh, LULAC uh, Council uh, Clubhouse. Um, it, it sits right outside a TERS, or it sits outside two TERSes. It's not in uh, either of the two TERSes. One's Montrose TERS, one's Midtown TERS. Uh, and that's something that I'm going to be working with. The, I'm working with the administration uh, to see what we can do to include that in one of these two TERS. Uh, so that way in the future, hopefully there will be some funding from the TERS uh, to help with the renovation of this historic building. Uh, and I know, uh, you know, you, you worked with uh, Mayor Turner back in the legislature. So I'm hoping that's something that, uh, you know, we can work together to try to see what we can do to uh, include this uh, clubhouse into one of these TERS in the near future. Well, whatever I could do to help, uh, probably we should schedule a meeting with the mayor and whatever staff is, is, uh, would be in, uh, inclusive of that uh, so that we can get uh, it uh, restored and functioning and helping the community again. Like That's what it did. People don't realize, but LULAC has been at the forefront fighting for Raza uh, in Houston since the 1940s. Right. Uh, and even, uh, you know, the fact that you have a, a boulevard, uh, Mercado Garcia, uh, named after you know Medal of Honor winner in World War II, uh, it was Lulac that fought to get that done. It was Lulac that fought for him when he was turned down for service uh, at a restaurant there in Sugarland. I mean, Lulac has been at the forefront. Uh, we're 91 years young, uh, <laughs> and we're still fighting for Dalasa. So, hey, thank you so much for all that you do, and thank you for calling in, Domingo. Continued success. Thanks, Domingo. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you. Gracias, and thank you, dear listeners. Hey, this has been a fantastic first kickoff broadcast of Latino politics and news. And I want you to know, do not get worried. People have been sending me texts and calls saying, does this mean nuestra palabra Latino writers have to say is off the air? It does not mean that. It means that we can focus directly on writing. Of course, politics and art go together. But we will be back at 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. as we've been doing for the past 19 years, to bring you Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say on the air. we got two writers to talk to tonight. And next week on Latino Politics and News at 2 p.m., we've got our first candidates that we will be interviewing. So next Tuesday, we're going to be talking to a Latina, Diana Martinez-Alexander, who is in a primary runoff for the Democrats for the position of Harris County Precinct 3 that was formerly held by Republican Raddick. He actually retired. The Republican candidate is Tom Ramsey. We've been calling him. I don't. We just happen to have all Democrats on the show. Okay, we've been inviting the Republicans to come on, so we do want to talk to him. But Diana Martinez-Alexander is in a runoff with Michael Moore. She will be on next week to talk about her platform. And then in addition, we're also going to have Sri Kulkarni, who won his runoff on the Democratic side, and he will be facing off the Republican who wins the Republican uh, runoff election between Kathleen Wall and then Troy Nell. So the two Republicans will face off, and then one of them will go up against Democrat Sri Kulkarni for the Texas Democrat seat, con congressional seat 22 which was abandoned by Pete Olson. Again, it's fascinating, too. we got to give a shout-out to the Latinos in Fort Bend County. Yo, Latinos in Fort Bend County started hitting us up. I can't wait to see who folks have suggested as Latino candidates for mayor. want to remind you once again, you can either post that on our Facebook page, Latino Politics and News, hit us up on Twitter, 
at politicslatino or email it info at latinopoliticsandnews.com. We have a few more minutes where you can call it in, 713-526-5738. But I want to thank our guests. Hey, thank you so much, Councilman Gallegos. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. And by all means, we hope that we can have you back on a regular basis. Yeah, definitely. I'll be more than happy to. We appreciate it. Shout out to Domingo Garcia, National Elect President, for coming in. Hey, Al Castillo, you know what You know what I, you know what I love about you? Not only are you President of Council 60, but you also roll your... You roll up your sleeves and you get down in the ditches and you're running the board for us today. So thank you. Thanks, Tony. And I would like to congratulate you for on your new show, yet another platform to uh, to chase the causes and, and run down the issues. And thanks for that. I appreciate Impressive. it, brother. I appreciate it. And shout out to Lulac. Shout out to Don, Vibu, Lori, and then also Jesse, <laughs> and then Rodrigo for, for keeping it real. Hey, you know, it's KPFT 90.1 FM. Thank you. Back in the day, cuando era un niño, someone in the crowd might have looked at me fail. With an evil eye, abuela called it ojo. Reached in the fridge and took out a webo, sign of the cross with the egg as a remedy. Rub it on my body to remove the bad energy. Pray out loud so we can all hear it. Egg underneath the bed to absorb the evil spirits. The wind blew, the house shook. I laid back with candles, the rosary, and the sage plant. Sana, sana, fix vapor rub on my chest. Fell asleep and woke up in a puddle of sweat. Felt better after shaking the omen. Zone floated on the earth that I'm roaming. In the Americas, some call it folklore. I'm well, I broke the egg, now I'm free from folklore. Years of handshakes and bloodlines to the test When one is jealous of another success Family, friends, associates and neighbors can all result to bevel when chasing after paper. Friends and enemies, good and bad energy, mild and awful, affecting culture, psychology. Bad vibes can damage you and your circle. Wrong intentions from so-called friends can hurt you. Watch your life you're living. Keep them at a distance. They'd rather see you missing than healthy and uplifted. Do you get this chance in this life to make a difference? People that surround you will affect conditions. Living space positive. How I live. Yes, I try to. Learn, connect, and create community at the Shrine of the Black Madonna in Houston. African history classes are offered to the public free of charge every Saturday at 1 p.m. Take an educational journey through time and explore the continent's rich and diverse history. The Shrine's Buy Black Marketplace takes place on the first Saturday of each month from 12 p.m. to 6 p.m. Come support the largest marketplace for black-owned businesses in the Southwest. More at theyearofrestoration.org slash houston.html. KPFT Houston. The Pacifica Bylaws referendum is underway, and as a member, you have a right to vote on whether to replace the current bylaws with the proposed bylaws. Proponents say reducing board size is necessary to effectively reach decisions and to reduce factional divisions that have been paralyzing governance. 
Many on the other side agree that the boards are too large, but counter that eviscerating Pacifica's hard-won listener democracy to install a set of hand-picked directors will lead to governance which is unaccountable. For more info, visit elections.pacifica.org or leave a message on 510-931-7504. Be sure to cast your ballot by 11.59 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on March 19th. Community-based.